Hello, and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm Greg B., joined as always by Jacob. Hey. And today, we're going to be doing a very special episode. We're going to be talking about social deduction games as a genre, looking at two of the bigger names, The Resistance and Secret Hitler, the brand new one that's very popular. So that's going to be exciting. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. Yeah, so we actually got to play some games together this time. Right. And... For How novel. Yeah, I know. Like We actually managed to play some games with each other that we weren't even <laughs> reviewing this week. Yeah, it's been quite a trip. But yeah. we, we didn't have a lot of fun with those, though. The first one that we played was Paris Connection, yep. which I know you mentioned on last week's episode. Yes, I did. Um, and that was a lot of fun. I'm glad that I got you to play a train game and admit that it was enjoyable. Hey, I'm not one of those people who reflexively hates Ticket to Ride. I just think that it is overplayed as a theme. Ticket to Ride will always have a special place in my heart as one of the first board games that I really loved. Oh, good, good. But this is one of those games, the the Paris Connection, that I think, in my books anyway, I might even replace Ticket to Ride with this in terms of my introductory kind of games. It's a different game. It's definitely a different game. It has a different feel. Less, you know, getting from connecting one place to another and getting your secret routes and points and through that. And much more, you know, management of placing them on the on the table and that kind of stuff. But still, easy, quick, simple, and I think that this is a lot of fun both for new players and for old players. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. And I think one of the things that makes it really great is the the sort of flexibility that you have with placing the trains, because, like you said, there's no specific routes you know there are cities clearly defined cities on the map but it's just a hex grid you can go about them any which way you want and i think not having to worry about like oh no i've been blocked Mm -hmm. on this specific route you know it takes a lot of the pressure off that comes along with that aspect of ticket to ride and makes it much more about the other aspect which is controlling the supply of trains versus how much stock you're willing to hold and so it, it really does play more like an economic game than a building game. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I do like that quite a bit. I've always liked those kinds of train games as it is, where you do have a little bit of that stock and that kind of stuff. But this one, I think, does it very well and very, very accessibly. Mm-hmm. In that it's just easy. You are very simple mechanics. The rule book is literally two pages for the English rules. Very refreshing. Um, yeah, it's, it's very nice. So... <laughs> I, I continue to enjoy it. It's still a lot of fun. Even I've played it three times now, and yeah. I'm sure that I'll keep playing it. I think the combination of simplicity and quickness, speed, you know, each game is over in 30 minutes, mm-hmm. makes the replayability pretty good. But also, like I said, that simplicity. The fact that they, rather than having, you know, a train placement mechanic and also a stock buying mechanic, the fact that they just said, okay, the trains that go on the map are the same trains that represent how much value of that rail that you hold. Mm-hmm. One, makes the game simpler. And two, really drives the core of the game because yeah. that's the tension between how many do you have behind your shield and how many are on the field. And if it if they had done it any other way, maybe a more traditional way, I really don't think the game would have worked. So yeah. huge kudos to them for a very successful design decision. I agree completely. Yeah. And the other game that we got to play was Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Yes, it was. And this is a game that I've loved for a while. 
already. It's a really fun game about building crazy castles, just like the real-life Mad King Ludwig of, what was it? Bavaria? Bavaria. There yeah. we go. Yeah, who I had heard of his castles. Obviously, everyone's heard of the real-life Disney castle in Neuschwanstein. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize that he was actually named Ludwig and that this game was modeled after him. So that was cool. Yeah. And one of the biggest aspects that I love about this game is the uh, master builder aspect. Mm -hmm. It is such an interesting and unique mechanic that... You know, one person gets to choose the prices of the different rooms, and then they are the ones who get paid by the other players. And I think this is really, really interesting because they have to then look at what other players are building and like, oh, this player is going to really want this room, or no one wants this room, therefore I'm going to make it the cheapest. And, you know, and so that I can maximize my profit. But also, you know, I want to put mine somewhere that the one that I want, I want to put it somewhere like higher so that people don't take it from me, but also not too high so I have to use all my money to get it. Exactly. Yeah, there's a tension there. And again, just like with the, um, you know, the, the stock versus trains mechanic of Paris Connection, this is a really important mechanic. And I think it's one of the ones that sort of enables the entire rest of the game to function because you can absolutely imagine a situation, a, a variant of Castles of Mad King Ludwig in which... You know, the tiles hit the board either in a specific order or in a randomly generated order. Everyone pays the bank. Costs are reduced because the master builder is not generating huge income. That still functions technically, yeah. but it just loses so much of that uniqueness and so much of the strategic element that goes along with, okay, either, you know, I'm master builder this turn, I'm going to set things up this way, or even for people down the line, I'm going to be master builder in a couple turns what hasn't been taken yet what can i be thinking about placing you know it's, yeah. it's just a, a good way to drive extra strategic thought yeah and how do i keep my money until i am master builder so i don't have to take a turn in order to get more money exactly it's that kind of stuff and there's there's a lot of really cool things in the game with that and then just how the rooms fit together and like the doorways and that kind of stuff and getting all you know i have to make this perfect i like it when things fit together well so having a game where some of the rooms are different sizes and different shapes and don't necessarily have square corners that they can be put together nicely was frustrating, but also really satisfying when I got, you know, the 150, even though it was a circle room, it fit perfectly circumscribed in this one little square hole that I had left over. I was just like, yes! Which obviously is at odds sometimes with my need to get different rooms in order to score big points. Yeah, you know, but that's the that's the concession that you make. Yeah, and this was the first time we played with uh, moats. Yeah, yeah, moats. Well, it was the first time I had played. Period. Yes. But it was the first time you had played with moats. Moats were interesting, I think, yeah. from a strategic standpoint, because obviously they circumscribe a lot of the strategies that I would assume were more popular in older mm -hmm. versions. You know, you go for big buildings, you go for lots of outdoor buildings that are worth lots of money, so mm -hmm. that you can vault into other things. Those don't really work with moats because the, the build base that you have is so small and they yeah. synergize with having lots of interior buildings. Yeah. But at the same time, I think, you know, one of the people that we played with completed her moat mm -hmm. and it, it worked. You know, she got lots of points yeah. from doing that. So it's another interesting element. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. And the fact that you could choose whether to do it or not was even better. Exactly. Yeah. The fact that it's, it, you know, it's like hallways or corridors where it's just always there but not everyone can get three sides of their moat uh, 
is is an you know an interesting sort of mechanic. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so that's what we've been playing, and we haven't been playing much else, but we do have something else to talk about. I'm going to put Jacob on the spot and talk about how bad he is at rules because <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so oh we're playing Paris Connection. We played an entire game. We played almost two games, Paris Connection. And then his roommate goes, no, no, you don't have to just put down one train at a time. You can put down between one and five trains at a time. And we both look over at him like, are you crazy? But no, that's the rule. It says right there in the rules, you can take between one and five trains and put them on the board at a time, which doesn't change fundamentally what you're trying to do, but it changes pretty fundamentally how you can do it and how much you can impact the board in a single turn. Yeah. And these is this is two pages of rules. <laughs> so I know. I don't know how I missed it and I I'm going to blame this on either Pierce or someone else I was playing with the other day because literally while I was reading the rules I was also holding a conversation with someone. <laughs> okay. I mean that's see there you go. Don't talk in rules. I don't know. There's yeah. like a don't drink and drive comparison yeah. but it's too opaque for me to make. But at the same time this this was only the first, or technically the second example this weekend of me misreading the rules. Right, because then there's the even bigger one. So, we're playing Castles of Mad King Ludwig. A self-described favorite of Jacob's. Yes. Three quarters of the way through the game, I'm flipping through the rules, and I realize that we have been completely scoring wrong. We've been scoring... <laughs> I can't even. We've been scoring rooms as they hit the field, which you're supposed to do, but we had not been scoring rooms that they were connected to after the fact, scoring rooms that they were adjacent to in the case of activity rooms after the fact, scoring basement rooms after... There were like three different things that would have dramatically impacted the final score of the game that yeah. we hadn't been doing, and Jacob has never done ever... So, I've played this game so many times. Every this is like one of those things so many wrong ways. where it's revealed that you like used steroids, and then they have to go back and like strike your name from every record that you ever set. Like every game of this that you've ever played is now suspect and can't be trusted. Well, it's been completely wrong, so yeah. <laughs> but so yeah, we learned this weekend that I am not allowed to read rules, especially not while distracted. Right. Always get a second pair of eyes on the rules because shit like this happens otherwise, even to the best of us. Yeah. So. And, and then me as well. And then, uh, <laughs> all right, self-effacing. That's, that's fine. But yeah, so rules, wackiness aside, that's what we've been playing lately. And now, let's unmask the identity of our social deduction games. Jankies. Yeah, so we're talking social deduction today. And within our social deduction, the two that we want to call out because they're similar and also very popular are The Resistance and Secret Hitler. But there are certain things that most social deduction games have in common. The first of those things is that people have secret roles. And that is the basis of social deduction games. There are going to be people who are on a different team, usually two different teams, and it's a secret. So you now have to figure out who is on your team and who is not without ever revealing your cards. 
Yeah, that's about as rudimentary as it gets. You've got usually two teams. Sometimes you'll have a sort of a wild card, you know, person who's out for themselves. But your identity determines which team you're on, and which team you're on determines your agenda, sort of what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And that can vary based on which game you're playing, but for the most part, one team wants to make sure that everyone survives or make sure that something happens safely, and the other team wants to either kill someone or make sure that something fails. Those are really the two sort of paradigms that happen. And the precise mechanic and the way in which that happens more often than not is that gameplay takes place over rounds. Each round, there's something that happens, a determination that gets made of, okay, you know, these are the people that we're going to put on this job, or these are the people that we think is the bad guy. Discussion, deliberation, sometimes action, and then secret decisions are made. Sometimes that's made by a single person when everyone else's eyes are closed. Other times it's made by voting with secret cards. In either event, at the end of each round, something happens. A mission is successful or a mission fails. Someone dies or someone is saved. Something Something is implemented. Exactly. Yeah. And then you also have, in these games, fundamentally, you just don't know all the information. Right. So when you're making all these decisions about whether or not you know, someone goes on a mission or this person becomes chancellor or whatever it is that you're making the decision about, you don't know for sure that this other person is you know, on your team. And that's for the most part anyway. Yeah. And so because of that, you really have to you know, try to read the social cues, the way that they're acting maybe they're acting slightly different slightly strange and is that because they're on the other team like the quote-unquote bad team or is that because they're you know just acting strange because (laughs) today they had some bad coffee earlier or something or not enough of it or maybe even too much (laughs) definitely a very real possibility so i mean it's very interesting in these social deduction games that you have like this imbalance of information and you're trying to make logical deductions from information that is not certain mm-hmm. and that as a core gameplay mechanic can be quite interesting and also quite frustrating at times right well because it's it's such a fundamental part of gameplay and it's also something that's very difficult to manage you know it's not from a game design standpoint these games are very much hands-off you know they put the general guidelines into place they say these are what the teams are these are what they can do these are what they want to do and then the bulk of gameplay is driven by this interaction and deduction between players which means you know there's going to be times where you just can't get it together for whatever reason but it has nothing to do with necessarily the game itself and much more to do with the players than i think in in any other sort of game so for that reason, these games tend to be, I would say, fairly divisive. Mm-hmm. You know, people like me who like orderly systems, who like knowing, you know, beyond a doubt that if they do this, this is going to follow from that, are going to be turned off by these sorts of games. But on the other hand, lots of people really thrive under these conditions where they can they can read other people, and that's, you know, what they want to do. That's what makes them tick. Yeah, because these are definitely much more people-centric games. So it really is about who you're playing with more than even just the mechanics of the game. Because 
you do have to just read people. You have to like ask the right questions. You have to, you know, figure out the right information, that kind of stuff, and see whether or not you trust someone if they're, you know, both two people claimed one role or some of some sort, and it's like who is the actual person who has that, or you know, do I trust this person when they're telling me to, you know, not choose this other person or something like that? Right. Exactly. So there's a big part with that, and then. There's usually a team in these social deduction games. One of them is usually good, quote-unquote, and one of them is usually evil and is trying to, you know, either sabotage or do something else. And the balance is usually not 50-50. It's usually there are fewer people on the evil side and more people on the good side. Right. And this puts the onus on the bad side or the evil side to actually have to do almost more work because they are both given more information to start off with in most cases, but they also have a tougher role of you know, gaining the trust of the people who are on the other side. And that's one of the other things that is in common for most of the, the, these games is that you're really trying to gain trust of the other people. And uh, whether or not it's you're on one side and you're trying to see whether or not someone is trustworthy or the other side and you're trying to convince someone that, they, that you are trustworthy. Right. Very much so. Because, you know, as the, the default, quote, good guy, you know, all you have to do is just move towards the objective. You know, whether that's voting yes on a successful mission or whether that's delaying someone who you know to be a liberal to the chancellorship. You have really a very simple job. You just do the thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas for the bad guys, it's that much more complicated because you have to balance between, okay, how much do I slow play this? You know, if I come on too strong, too fast, they're going to know that I'm a bad guy versus, you know, game rounds tend to only have maybe five to ten, depending on the game and depending mm -hmm. on the format, but they, they go by pretty quick. So you have to make the most of the time that you have. And it's it's very much that the the onus, as you said, is on the bad team to make things happen. Yeah, exactly. Now let's talk a little bit about some of the differences, I guess, in the different games. So we're talking about The Resistance and Secret Hitler. And we'll start with talking about The Resistance. Now, to clarify, I've gotten The Resistance a little while back, back before it, it was bundled with the Hidden Agenda and Inquisitor pack. So the base game was extremely vanilla. Right now, it is packaged with some more roles and that kind of thing, but the expansion Hostile Intent is still available and also has uh, these other plot cards that, that are pretty interesting. Now, for The Resistance, it is a game in which you have two teams, uh, the Resistance and the Spies. There are five missions that you go on. The Spies are trying to get at least three of them to fail. The Resistance is trying to get at least three of them to pass. So when you're playing, what you have to do is the president or the leader of that at that point is tasked in choosing a certain number of people to go on the mission. This changes depending on how many people are playing. And he or she gives out the, uh, the tokens that say, you're going on the mission, everyone goes, secretly votes on whether or not they like that team. That team, if they are confirmed, then goes on the mission. They get secret vote cards of, you know, pass or fail. If there's at least one fail, in most cases, the mission fails. If there are all only passes, then the mission passes. 
There are some cases when there are more players that you need two fails on one mission in order to fail it. So it makes it a little bit more difficult on the evil team. But in general, that is how the game is played. Right. And so you've got these these core mechanics, the mission system, the sort of dual safeguard of voting to confirm the team that goes on the mission and then the team that goes on the mission gets to vote on its success or not. But one of the defining characteristics of Resistance that sets it apart from Secret Hitler and also from some other social edition games is that each character has a role card which gives them, more often than not, specific powers. Well, each character can have one. Well, so the, the, the base game itself, when, you, when you're just playing the base, no one has any powers. It's just, you know, the, um, the evil people know who the, uh, the other evil people are. The good guys don't know anything. And that's it. It's gotcha. vanilla. Yeah, it's okay. it's clear as that. But the cool part about the expansions, and this is what makes Resistance shine, is that they give you these other roles. And there are quite a few of them, and they're very, very interesting. And they throw a lot of wrenches in, into the whole logic game in terms of, you know, getting more information. But do you trust this person? Like, I know that we had one of these in here. Is that the person or is that the person? Like, you know, who do I trust? Who, who is the person that has this information? And also, you know, then they have other people who are, like, deep undercover who, you know, you can see one thing, not. There are some very interesting roles. Yeah. And a lot of the a lot of the roles have to do with sort of the manipulation of how much information is available. You know, some roles will allow you to know the identities of other people, people on the other team, things like that, things that make you more sure of something. But then there are also other special roles that don't necessarily interact with information, but do interact with intuition. So that allow you to, uh, you know, discount someone from the mission even though they've already been put on it. Um, yeah. Things that allow you to act independently in ways that other people, other roles might not be able to and are very powerful because of that. Exactly. There are the mechanics in the Resistance, uh, especially if you play with the different modules, that give you these extra interesting roles or different kinds of um, powers that you can use in order to pretty much mess with the game like you know you have one extra person go on the mission but they don't count but you choose after they've already submitted which one is it that doesn't count so you you haven't revealed it yet but you also you know um you have that option and so it becomes very very interesting just how that all works and the mechanics can you know get manipulated in many different ways and the information that you get is just a lot more and I think one of the biggest things is that you have to trust the information that you're given. Uh, it's much more of that kind of game where you're looking at the other person. Can I trust you, Greg? Are you actually on my team? Yes, because the answer is always yes when you are asked that question. <laughs> yeah, and these are the kinds of games that give people nicknames like Beard of Lies. Which oh, is, is that where that comes from? Yes, it is from these kinds of games. Um... So... It is very interesting because it really does rely on the trust. Absolutely. And resistance in particular does because you have a, a sort of secondary mechanic for an evil team victory, which is if the team gets voted down three times in a row, the mission automatically fails. Yes. So, you know, it's not as though the good guys can just be put into a holding pattern of, 
okay, well, I don't trust anyone, mm-hmm. so we're going to go, and just no one's going to do anything, because obviously then the resistance would crumble. Yes. So that's, you know, sort of an alternative path to victory for the spies, and trust is very much a central aspect of resistance games like it. Exactly, exactly. And now let's talk about one of the newcomers, Secret Hitler. So Secret Hitler is a game in which you have the liberals and the fascists. The first big difference with this game is that you also have one person who is Hitler. There it is. Yep. So this person actually does not know who the other fascists are. So where in the resistance, you usually... All of the spies know who, who they are, and and so they can almost work together. In this game, not so much. And so the other fascists know who Hitler is, and they're trying to get him elected to chancellor. But at the same time, you know, he doesn't know who he's working with. Right. The other mechanic here is that you have a president and a chancellor who are elected, similar to the team getting chosen, and... Confirmed. Well, the chancellor is elected. The chancellor is elected, and the president chooses the chancellor. Right. And that that pairing has to be then confirmed by everyone playing the game. This is similar to how you know you get to choose the team, and then you have to vote yes or no. Mm-hmm. And then the president draws three of the they're called policy cards and looks at them takes one of them, puts it on the discard pile, and then hands the other two to the chancellor. The chancellor then gets to choose which of those two to enact. So you have two different chances to almost, you know, be on the evil side in this, in which, you know, you might draw one liberal policy and two fascist policies. And then if you're evil, you discard the liberal policy and give the two fascist policies to the other person. They have no choice. It doesn't matter which side they're on. Right. And then it becomes a matter of how much can you sell the idea that you, the president, drew three fascist policies and had no choice. Mm -hmm. And that's really one of the defining features of Secret Hitler as opposed to a game like Resistance. The information that you receive and the actions that you can take are much more mediated. You know, it's not just everyone gets a secret vote. There's that, you know, tiered, staged process of, okay, the president looks first, hands two to the chancellor, the chancellor enacts one. So you have almost a double confirmation system where when a fascist policy does get put into place, if it was out of necessity, two liberals can confirm that. They can say, yeah, I handed him two fascist policies. Yeah, they handed me two fascist policies. We had no choice. Move on. Exactly. And it also has a very interesting mechanic in that the fascist policies are not necessarily all bad. Yes. So when you enact fascist policies after a certain point, when it becomes dangerous, so the Hitler, if he is elected chancellor after three fascist policies are in place, the fascists win immediately. That is just end game. Now, depending on the number of players, you can get power starting earlier or later. Now, if you're playing and... You know, you have a fascist and liberal policy, but you see that, oh, if I play this fascist policy, I get to kill someone. That's a decision you have to make now. Yeah. Even if you are liberal, but let's say you think that you really know who Hitler is. Okay, I'm going to play this fascist policy, and then I'm going to kill that person. If I kill Hitler, I win. So it has that extra aspect of, you know, trying to see, you know, balancing of, do I want this power that much that I'm going to play this policy and get closer to victory for the fascists 
or am I going to keep it safe and go for the only victory condition or one of the two victory conditions for the liberals, which is either get all five liberal policies enacted or kill Hitler. Kill Hitler. So you have a little bit more of a choice there. And the other interesting thing is that the deck of the policy cards is stacked in the fascist favor. So there are more fascist cards than there are liberal policies. Therefore, it's a little bit, you know, of a interesting balance where you have to calculate, it's like, wait a minute, you know, there are no more liberal policies in the deck because we already have so many out and so many in the discard pile. What are we going to do now? Okay. Right. Secret Hitler as a game is much less of a binary game, you know, with a game like Resistance or uh, One Night Ultimate Werewolf. You know, you're on your team. That's what you're going to do. You're going to advance the goals of that team or you're going to resist the goals of the enemy team. With a game like Secret Hitler, there's a lot more of a gray area because the powers and the abilities and sort of the unique things that you can do aren't driven by precisely who you are. It's driven by the policy track. So, you know, sometimes it'll be of necessity. Sometimes it'll be of sort of a flirting with danger, dance with the devil sort of desire to assassinate someone. Yep. But at some point, a fascist policy is probably going to get implemented. And so it's a much more gray game, which lends itself, I think, personally, to more of a strategic consideration. You know, Obviously, there's the element of you have to intuit who the fascists are, who Hitler is, who you can trust as a fellow liberal, but there's more strategy involved in, okay, when do we want to enact this policy? Whereas mm-hmm. with a game like Resistance, it's purely who's good, who's bad. We're never, as the good guys, we're never going to deliberately fail the mission. And in fact, we can never deliberately fail a mission because we only have success cards. Well, um, well, you're only, as a member of the Resistance, you are only allowed to, in the rules, well, yeah, play the, success cards. This card. is true. Cause, uh, you okay, do have both. Who's, who's Resistance? Hand back your failure cards. Yep. Okay, well, that's easy. No. But yeah, I do think, for that reason, that Secret Hitler is a much more strategic game. Yeah. There's more choice, I think, is the biggest thing in Secret Hitler than there is in the Resistance. Like, like we just said, that you can't vote to fail a mission in the resistance if you are on the resistance yeah versus secret hitler even if you are a liberal you might want to or you might either want to or have to play a fascist policy right so there's a little bit more choice a lot more gray area a little bit less on in terms of the relying on people's personalities to decide and a lot more on actually like thinking about how this has been working like what has been the flow of the game which is definitely an interesting change in terms of social deduction games. Right, absolutely. But at the end of the day, they're both really good games, if you like that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and very emblematic of the social deduction genre. That includes a lot of the other games that we didn't talk about, Werewolf, The Resistance Avalon, as well as games with slightly different flavors like Deception Murder in Hong Kong, and even Two Rooms and a Boom. So it's a wide genre if you've liked any of these games at any point but said to yourself, you know what, I bet if you tweaked this one thing, it would be slightly better, I can almost guarantee you that there's a game out there that tweaked exactly that one thing. Exactly. It's a very wide field. If you like social deduction games, take a look at some of the other ones. Many of them follow the same kind of core mechanics as we stated earlier, but there are ones that don't. So I'm sure that you'll be able to find some good ones out there.
We hope you enjoyed our review and comparison of The Resistance and Secret Hitler. And if you have any other ideas and thoughts about these games, please let us know on Facebook, Google+, or however else you've heard about the podcast. We would love to hear it and let us know what we've missed. Let us know of any other of your favorite social deduction games. Also, don't forget that WashingCon tickets are currently on sale. WashingCon is September 9th and 10th this year, and it's going to be a lot of fun. It's in Georgetown Convention Center down here in D.C., right central D.C. pretty much. There are buses from the metro to the convention center, for those of you who are taking that. Easy to get to. Uh, Two days of lots of board gaming fun. A lot of really cool people are coming by, and we'll be there. So... Definitely stop on by, uh, buy tickets online now, and be sure to join us next week when we will be reviewing Paris Connection by Queen Games.